Welcome to another episode of the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk to the experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and others to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps we can take in the effort to shift towards a healthier lifestyle. My name is Stephanie Nishi, and today I am joined by Dr. Linda Plowright to talk about plant-based diets and mental health. Dr. Linda Plowright is a psychiatrist working in London, Ontario. She completed her medical training and psychiatry specialization at McMaster University and completed a fellowship in integrative medicine through the University of Arizona College of Medicine. She is an adjunct professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Western University. And she is on staff at the Child and Parent Resource Institute with the Dual Diagnosis Behavior and Anxiety Clinic. She also provides telemedicine consultation to children and adults and works closely with a group providing humanitarian medical care in the Dominican Republic. Her professional interests include dual diagnosis, integrative medicine, mindfulness, clinical hypnosis, and cross-cultural health. Welcome, Dr. Linda Plowbright. Thank you so much for joining the Plant Based Canada podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So today we're talking about the impact of a plant-based lifestyle on mental health. And while awareness and knowledge of mental health has been becoming more mainstream, for myself and for our listeners, could you briefly describe what mental health is and what mental illness entails? I'm glad you started off by saying briefly, because this could be a very long answer. I think, you know, we could fill a a textbook just about what is mental health and what is mental illness. So I will try to be brief. I think that one of the definitions of mental health that that really resonates with me is the World Health Organization's definition, where they say, mental health is a state of well-being in which an individual realizes his or her own abilities, they can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively, and are able to make a contribution to their community. And I think what's most important about that definition is that it highlights that mental health is more than just the absence of disease or the absence of disorder. Uh, And it also highlights that mental health is an integral part of our overall well-being. I think for a long time, mental health and and psychiatry in particular, they were treated as though they were somehow separate from the rest of the body and the, the rest of our overall health. And the reality is we're seeing more and more that's, that's actually not the case. Uh, It's all one body. And I mean, that, That kind of seems like we should have always realized that, but uh, we're starting to see more and more how every part of the body interacts uh, with the whole, which is why the World Health Organization also says there's no health without mental health. And I think that's a really important note. Now, if you're looking at the flip side, mental illness, I like the CMHA definition for that. They say that it's disturbances in thoughts, feelings, and perceptions that are severe enough to affect day-to-day functioning that can really run the gamut of a lot of different conditions, mood disorders and anxiety disorders, psychotic disorders, personality disorders, sleep disorders, ADHD. There's there's lots of different things that come under that umbrella. And I think it's tempting to think of mental illness as being 
the opposite of mental health, but that's not even necessarily true. You can live with mental illness and still have good quality, good quality of life and, and flourish. And the opposite is true. You can have no diagnosable mental health condition and yet still struggle with your mental health. So I think it's important to know that these things are, are sort of umbrella terms or, or spectrums that can encompass a lot of different aspects of someone's life. Thank you for so much. And like you said, I feel like we can talk this whole podcast just about this one topic. And there's one thing that you said that really resonated with me. It's that there's no health without mental health. And I feel like this is potentially one of those misconceptions or one of those areas that we just haven't really delved into as much because we look at the other organs of the body, but what about our mind as well? So in addition to this potential misconception, could you speak to maybe one or two of the main persisting myths or misconceptions that surround mental illness and potential stigmas? This is such an important topic. I'm glad you asked about that because it's something that we still are struggling with, misconceptions and stigma in mental illness. And I think we've made a lot of progress, but there's certainly a long way to go on that too. Um, I think one of the misconceptions that's really important to address sort of right off the, off the hop is the myth that people with mental illness are violent or dangerous. And research actually shows that people with mental illness on average are no more likely to be violent than people without mental illness. Actually, research suggests that people who experience mental illness are more likely to themselves be victims of violence than they are to be the one who perpetrates violence. But we, what we do know is that if you exclude people from communities and you exclude them from services, that then can be linked to violence. And that's what we do sometimes to people who are living with mental illness. We exclude them from communities or services. And, and it's, it's that exclusion that's linked to violence, not actually mental illness. I also think it's important to know that mental illness is real. Real illness, just the same way other illnesses that we talk about, our heart disease and cancer and diabetes. Um, and there's still, for some people, this kind of lingering misconception that mental illness is somehow, you know, weakness or, or laziness or bad behavior. And, and that's completely not true. No one chooses to have a mental illness. And you can't overcome mental illness simply by, you know, toughening up or um, willing yourself to feel better. And I think that we see more progress in medicine and in mental health care as we really break down that stigma that this is real illness just the same way other illnesses are. Um, but that being said, it's important to know that it's also a myth that you can't get better if you have mental illness, that you're sort of, you know, stuck with it for life. And what we do know is that the cause of mental illness is usually multifactorial. Uh, there's usually an interplay of someone's genetics, uh, their, their life experiences, their lifestyle. And so although you may not be able to change your negative childhood experiences or, or your genetics, and they, they may both play a role in someone developing mental illness, neither are generally sufficient on their own, nor do they mean that mental illness is going to be inevitable. And I think that's what's really great news because it, it shows us that there are things that we can be doing every day choices we make multiple times every day that can improve our mental will wellness and our resiliency, no matter what our genes are or our past experience has been. 
and people can and do recover from mental illness. And even for those individuals for whom their mental illness is chronic, there are still things that, that we can be doing to help manage the illness and help us lead more productive and engaged lives. That's fantastic to hear. And I feel like you brought up some really good points, especially in regards to um, individuals who may be experiencing um, situations with their mental health. It, may not necessarily be visible. It may be like a hidden health aspect or they're not necessarily those that are very um, violent or making a lot of noise, but potentially on the other side, just like you said. And I feel like that potentially, well, maybe this is just my own mind, but would you consider that to be one of the most prevalent and or most under-acknowledged mental health-related concern in Canada, or is there something else that we should be more aware of in this regard? Well, you know, mental illness is something that is really prevalent the world over. All countries, all ages, genders, ethnicities, all of socioeconomic statuses. Um, so I think, you know, Canada is, is a snapshot of the rest of the world. We, we really have every mental health condition in the DSM-5. You're going to see that in Canada as well. And it, it actually can be difficult to get a handle on what is the actual incidence of mental illness because there's differences in how we define mental illness or mental health um, and even then the diagnostic criteria for each condition um, and cultural ideas about mental illness um, might cause someone to misattribute their issues to something else or to not want to report their symptoms that they're having. But what we do know is that, you know, Canada's sort of no exception. We have every mental health condition here. Um, the current Canadian rates are suggesting that about by age 40, about 50% of the population will have or have had a mental illness. And again, that's going to depend on what definition you're using for mental illness. But in about any given year, one in five people in Canada will personally experience a mental health problem or illness. So we can see that, you know, it's, it's really quite prevalent. And even beyond that, we know that even if you yourself don't personally experience mental illness, it's going to affect you because at some point you're going to know someone, whether that's, you know, a family member or a friend or a colleague, um, because really there's nobody nobody who's immune to, to having these issues, right? Like we said, all ages and educations and income levels. In Canada, about 8% of adults will experience major depression at some time in their lives, about 1% for bipolar disorder, 1% for schizophrenia, about 5% for anxiety disorders, ADHD is 7 to 8%. And again, it really, it depends on what literature you're looking at, what the uh, sample population was, what were the diagnostic criteria used? But I think the point of those statistics is really to let us know that it's more prevalent than a lot of us realize. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned previously that genetics and potentially that there are lifestyle factors as well that are risk factors. Can you tell us about some of them um, modifiable or risk factors that we could potentially change that have been associated with mental health and could you share if there are any general recommendations for maintaining good mental health? I do have a question before this, though. In your previous response, you had mentioned the DSM-5, and I was wondering if you could briefly tell our listeners what exactly that is. So the DSM-5 is sort of a, 
the Bible for anyone who's <laughs> diagnosing mental illness. Um, it's the one we use in Canada. Um, in other places, they use the, the ICD. Uh, here we use the DSM-5 and it really goes through all the different diagnosable mental illness and what is the, the diagnostic criteria for um, those illnesses. And it really just helps us to communicate with other professionals. So if I say someone meets criteria for generalized anxiety disorder or schizoaffective disorder or obsessive compulsive personality disorder, whatever it is that communicates to other professionals that you know they're gonna have met a certain set of criteria of symptoms. And it helps us to know um, really communicate what it is we're talking about, um, as well as to the, the patient themselves. They can look up those criteria, we can discuss what the criteria are. And then it also helps with research when we're wanting to look at what are the different treatments that we can use or prevention strategies we can use. It helps us to have a shared language of what are the different conditions that we're, we're trying to treat with this research study. Thank you very much. I feel like that gives a really good um, picture and understanding of what this manual or guidance is and helps create um, that communication between individuals so that we're all on the same page. Going back to the previous question, you had mentioned that about 8% of adults will experience mental health and that there's genetic risk factors, but also modifiable risk factors with mental illness. So just to reiterate, are there any um, general recommendations that you could share for maintaining good mental health? I think that that's uh, a really important conversation because I think a lot of us know for other healthcare conditions, you know, say we're talking about heart disease, people know, okay, so heart disease might run in my family. Maybe I've inherited a, a genetic risk factor for heart disease. Um, oh, okay. And we know that, you know, lifestyle factors like stress that can impact heart disease, but people also know that their, their lifestyle, so how they manage stress and, you know, substances, are you smoking or drinking and what's your diet and uh, how physically active are you? We know that all those things play a role, but it's only more recently that we're talking more about that with mental illness. Um, and, and really it's the same for most mental illnesses as it is for the rest of the, you know, sort of neck down illnesses, uh, heart disease and diabetes, et cetera, that yes, you may have inherited a genetic risk factor if there's other individuals in your family with similar mental health concerns. Um, and we know lifestyle stressors, things that may have happened in your past that can also affect your risk, but so can the things that we do every day, uh, our lifestyle. So it's really important to develop a mental wellness routine, right? Even if you don't have a diagnosable mental health condition, there's probably someone in your family, right? Most people, most, well, I, I would venture to say all families, we all have um, different conditions that other individuals in our families have experienced. And we don't know what genetic load we've been born with. And we don't know what um, stressors are going to come up in our future. I think, you know, it's, it's really thrown people for a loop these past 18 months. It's been a very stressful time. So it's really important to have a wellness routine the way, you know, you have a wellness routine, hopefully for your oral hygiene, right? We know that you're going to have better oral health if you brush and you floss and you take care of, of your mouth and your teeth and the same for our mental health. So some of the things we can be doing are focusing on a diet that's anti-inflammatory and focused on whole foods. Uh, making sure we have regular physical activity. You can follow the Canadian physical activity guidelines to get a sense of how much we should have at uh, every stage of life. Uh, practicing good sleep hygiene. Oh, 
boy, that's a problem in North America, right? Where everybody's looking at their devices right before bed and first thing in the morning. And, you know, there's lots of components of sleep hygiene, but I think one of the most challenging for, for a lot of us is no screens of any kind for at least an hour before bed and no bright lights and having kind of your daily dose of darkness is important. And, and overall limiting screen use and taking break from negative content, whether that's, you know, things on social media or what we're watching on, on TV and movies, um, just making sure that it's not all sort of being bombarded with negative content and spending time outdoors. Right. That's that's great for a lot of reasons. The um, sort of access to nature and green spaces, the, the sunlight and vitamin D uh, production. But that can also help us with social connections, and which which is very helpful when you need support, having some of those connections in your life and also having a stress management technique that works for you. Right. The, the same technique isn't going to work for everybody, but having something that you practice regularly, even when things are going good, so that when you do encounter stress, uh, you already know, you already have your go-to stress management, whether that's breath work or progressive muscle relaxation or mindfulness or self-hypnosis or whatever it is that, that works for each individual, having that sort of in their tool belt. And we know that having a healthy lifestyle like this can protect our mental health and our well-being because it actually decreases the risk of developing a diagnosable mental illness. And if you're already living with mental illness, Sometimes it can lessen symptoms or, or just improve overall functioning and quality of life. And although I'm, I'm in no way anti-medication, I think medication should be a component of care when needed. And if we practice good, healthy lifestyles, sometimes that can let us use less medication or it can improve the efficacy of the medication or even decrease the side effects. And that's really important because a lot of times people will find a medication that is helpful, but they can't tolerate it because of side effects. And a healthy lifestyle can help with that. So it sounds like there's a lot of potential there with these modifiable risk factors and modifiable things that we can incorporate into our everyday life. And you mentioned that diet as one of those potential things that we could modify and that there's anti-inflammatory and whole food diets. And I feel like in nutrition research, we often talk about dietary interventions for all our other organs, as you mentioned, from the neck down for our heart, our kidneys, our pancreas, and so on, but neglect our brain. Why do you think nutrition is often overlooked when it comes to improving and maintaining our mental health? That's a great question. And, and I'm not sure I have the full answer to that, but I think that part of it probably goes back to the history of psychiatry, where we did sort of treat mental health as though it were separate from the rest of the body. Uh, like it was somehow largely independent from overall physical health. And, you know, at different times in the history of psychiatry, the focus was more on psychological processes in individuals' lives. Uh, and then we moved into more of a biomedical model, but we were then looking at sort of brain chemistry and physiology and genetics um, and not really looking at the way the rest of the lifestyle uh, impacted someone's mental health or even the rest of their health. I mean, we wouldn't uh, treat someone's heart disease without saying, well, you know, if their diabetes isn't under control, we're probably not going to get great control of their heart disease. We know that, okay, we have to be addressing both of those issues, but we know that just for an example, depression is an independent risk factor for heart disease. 
So if you have depression, you're at greater risk for heart disease and vice versa. And the same is true for a lot of the other physical illnesses and mental illnesses, so much so that it probably doesn't even make sense to sort of separate them that way. It's all really just health and, and illness. I, I think the other problem though, is that, you know, it's, it's hard to do nutrition studies. They're not generally well-funded the same way that pharmaceutical studies are. Um, so we're, we're not getting sort of the plethora of studies that we've had for medications and other interventions. Also, it, it, it does take sort of a cumulative effort to improve our lifestyle, right? In, and there is a reality of, of time pressures that physicians and other healthcare practitioners face. And if you have 15 minutes with a, a patient, it, it certainly makes it difficult to address lifestyle factors. And I'm, I think a lot of physicians and a lot of healthcare practitioners want to do that, uh, but it is hard when you have sort of those time pressures and, and short appointments. Uh, and it is certainly quicker to write a prescription. And I would say sort of the last factor is that there really hasn't been a lot of training in medical school about nutrition. Um, so I think a lot of healthcare providers, maybe they don't feel knowledgeable in talking about nutrition. Um, or feel like, well, their patients aren't likely to make the changes anyway, so I'm going to focus on sort of suggestions I can make that are more likely to be followed through. So it's a complicated picture, but I think there's probably several factors that are playing into the fact that nutrition really hasn't been addressed in mental health care. It sounds like from what you're saying that there's an interplay with mental health and many other diseases diseases and many other different factors that we have to consider and keep in mind. And I know when we're doing nutritional research, we often consider depression as one of the confounding factors or factors to consider along the pathway of how one exposure intervention is affecting the outcome or something to adjust for. But it potentially could be a mediator, it sounds like, in and of itself, or something that has its own influence on other diseases and vice versa. I was wondering if you could speak to what some of the current research relating to diet and nutrition and mental health show, and if there's any benefits or adverse effects or associations that come about in recent years. Well, the, the research is not certainly where I think we'd like it to be or where it should be. Uh, it, it's difficult to do, you know, double blind, randomized controlled trials when it involves nutrition. And unfortunately, what then happens is we can take a bit of a reductionistic view uh, where we're looking at sort of one, one nutrient, you know, vitamin C or, or fiber, one single sort of dietary factor. Um, so sort of what we've had to do at this point with the research is look at um, all the different studies and kind of put them together to get a clearer picture of how nutrition impacts mental health. And you brought up a, a, a good point there when we were talking about the, the interplay between physical health conditions and mental health conditions. And that's something that really has come out very strongly in the research is the fact that there's this sort of bi-directional link between many of the diseases that we see most commonly in North America, or, or what we'd call sort of the diseases of affluence, um, and then different mental health conditions. So as we mentioned, there's this link between heart disease and depression. But the same can be said for a lot of other of the diseases that we see frequently. So diabetes and, and certain cancers and obesity, and diseases of central nervous system degeneration, like Alzheimer's disease, 
and different respiratory illnesses and thyroid illnesses, so many of the illnesses that we see, they increase your risk for developing mental health conditions like depression and anxiety disorders. And then the same is true on the other side. If you have depression or anxiety disorders, et cetera, then we know you have an increased risk for developing these physical health conditions. And it's interesting because we do talk about nutritional strategies for these physical health conditions. But now that we know that they're so intimately linked, it seems fairly safe to say that the same nutritional strategies we would be using to address someone's heart disease or diabetes or cancer are likely to also be beneficial for their mental health. And one of the, the factors that's likely mediating that bi-directional link is inflammation. And that's something that we're seeing a lot more research coming out about looking at inflammation. So inflammation is the protective or destructive response of body tissues to irritation or injury. And actually inflammation can be a really good thing because it's the foundation of the body's healing response, right? Bringing uh, nourishment and immune system activity to uh, a site of injury or infection. But the problem arises when inflammation stops serving a purpose and becomes chronic or widespread and can actually begin to damage the body and cause illness. And we know that chronic inflammation is a important factor in the development of a lot of these uh, physical illnesses, right? heart disease, cancer, et cetera. But what we now know is that inflammation is also important in the development of a lot of the mental health conditions like mood disorders and anxiety disorders and psychosis. And one of the reasons for this is because of a link between the brain and the immune system and something called cytokines, which are these small proteins that are important in communication between cells. And they have a crucial role in the immune system uh, and in fighting off infections. But cytokines can become dysregulated or harmful in inflammation. And there's studies that have been done where they give certain cytokines, unfortunately they're using animals in these studies, but they administer these cytokines to animals and then they start acting in a way we call sickness behavior. They get you know, listless and uh, low energy and they lose interest in eating and socializing and grooming and they lose interest in sex. They have an increased sensitivity to pain. And that's interesting because those are the symptoms that are similar to what we might see in depression or anxiety. And that sickness behavior is actually an appropriate and adaptive response when an animal, including a human is sick, right? If you have a cold or a flu, then you should isolate so you don't spread it around and you should rest and take care of yourself. But the problem is when this inflammation is chronic and actually the very thing we need to do to get better is to ignore all the signals our body is giving us and to get outside and socialize and get sunshine and get physical activity. But it's very hard when everything in your body is telling you to do the opposite. And there's a lot of sources of inflammation in our lives, right? Environmental toxins and poor sleep and high stress. Uh, but diet is one of the sources of inflammation because different dietary factors are either more pro or anti-inflammatory depending on their composition. So for good mental health, we wanna be focusing on a diet that's looking at whole foods, foods that are naturally high in fiber, really focusing on plant-based foods, because that tends to be the foods that are gonna be more anti-inflammatory.
Another thing that we uh, focus on in, in research is looking at our neurotransmitters. So those are chemicals found in the body that transmit signals from one brain cell or neuron to another. And we've known for a long time that neurotransmitters are important in mental illness. So a lot of the medications that we use to treat mental illness usually target one or more of these neurotransmitters like dopamine or serotonin, but they actually don't contain the neurotransmitters. They just affect how our body utilizes them. So we actually, our bodies have to make the neurotransmitters. So if we use serotonin as an example, actually 95% of the serotonin in your body is located in your gut. And it's the, the microbes in our microbiome that actually make the serotonin. And so just like making anything else, you have to have the right building blocks to make that and put it together. And we get those from our foods. So we need to be eating the foods that are gonna give us the right building blocks to make neurotransmitters. Um, and so we wanna be consuming a varied diet that's plentiful in all sorts of different fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds and legumes, because that's what's gonna give us the, the building blocks to make healthy neurotransmitters. Also our, our brain cells themselves, our neurons, uh, the diet that we eat plays a role in our body's ability to produce and maintain healthy brain cells. One example would be omega-3 fatty acids, uh, which are important to brain cell integrity because they contribute to the cell's outer layer, the, the membrane of our neurons. Um, and so that might be one of the reasons why omega-3 fatty acids seem to lower the risk for depression and play a role in brain development in infants and children and in memory and successful brain aging in the elderly, as well as making sure that uh, we're consuming uh, diet plentiful and different antioxidants because our bodies have these reactions called oxidation reactions or oxidative stress. And these are normal and, and necessary reactions, but they can produce free radicals that they can lead to cell damage or cell death all over the body, including the brain. And studies have shown that oxidative stress can increase our risk of depression and schizophrenia and other mental health conditions. So again, we wanna be consuming a diet that's plentiful in antioxidants like vitamin C and vitamin E and beta carotene and selenium um, because they're gonna keep the oxidation reactions in check and reduce unnecessary cell death and cell damage. It's also important to note that the standard American diet is calorically dense but nutritionally poor. And so even though we have access to so much uh, food and calories in North America, or, or at least you know, many of us do, um, still we can see dietary deficiencies because people are eating a lot of calories but not getting a lot of nutrition. And that's important because different dietary deficiencies can either worsen or, or mimic various mental health symptoms. So we want to be, you know, thinking about iron and folate and magnesium and, and again, omega-3 fatty acids and vitamin D and uh, vitamin B12 and others and making sure that we're consuming a, a diet that's varied and, and plentiful in the, the different foods that are going to make sure we don't have these dietary deficiencies. Another important point recently is the, the microbiome and how that impacts our mental health. So the microbiome is a collective term for all the microbes. So bacteria and fungi and protozoa and viruses that live 
inside and on the human body. And actually nine out of every 10 cells in our body actually belong to microbial species. 99% of the DNA in our bodies actually belongs to microbes. And the majority of these reside in our intestines. And I know, you know, that can sound kind of gross when you first hear about all the microbes on and inside us, but we're actually starting to understand just how important the microbiome and all these microbes are, because they actually do a lot of things to help keep us healthy. And one of the things that they do is help to make our neurotransmitters, as we mentioned. But the problem is that the, the sort of standard American diet, it might feed the human, maybe not well, but it might feed us with calories, but it may not be feeding the microbiome. We have to be consuming foods that have you know, non-digestible fibers that are actually food for our microbiome. We know that our gut has its own nervous system um, called the enteric nervous system or, or the second brain. And it uses all the same types of neurons and neurotransmitters that the brain and spinal cord do. And if the gut microbiome becomes unhealthy, it could negatively impact the enteric nervous system and disrupt the, the gut brain access, which is the biochemical signaling that takes place between the gastrointestinal tract and the nervous system. And the last thing I, I wanna mention uh, about sort of the research on, on diet and mental health, although you know I think we could go on all day about this, but uh, there's also a protein called BDNF that I wanted to mention. And it's a protein that controls new nerve cell growth. Um, one of the researchers from Harvard, Dr. John Rady, he calls it miracle growth for the brain. And I, I, I love that term, sort of the image of that. And, and it's important because we know that levels of this BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, um, they've been shown to be low in individuals with various mental health issues like depression and, and schizophrenia. And you can boost your BDNF levels with, with various things like exercise or even fasting. But research also shows that you can boost your BDNF levels with your diet, uh, like eating more flavanols. So that's a, a type of plant nutrient with antioxidant properties. Um, and flavanols are com commonly highest in, in a lot of fruits and vegetables and, and some teas as well, and maybe turmeric and some nuts. And it's not just what you eat, but also what you avoid eating because studies show that even a single high fat meal can lower BDNF levels. So although I think broad principles are most important um, and it's really easy to get bogged down with, oh my gosh, am I getting enough BDNF? And you know, are goji berries a superfood? And is kale superior to spinach? And you know, am I getting uh, enough turmeric in my diet? And it can be easy to sort of become overwhelmed I think it's really important to just look at the fact that all of those different factors that I was mentioning, they, they all sort of come back to point to the fact that eating a, a diet of whole foods as much as possible, avoiding processed or convenienced foods, um, and eating a diet that's plentiful in, in plant-based foods, that's going to be really what's most important for promoting mental health. I feel like there's such a wealth of information there, but so much to unpack and so many questions that that further leads to. And first of all, I feel so fortunate that you were one of our guest speakers at the Plant-Based Canada conference that we hold annually that was virtual this past May. And at that conference, you had mentioned about the impact of the microbiome on our mental health. So it's so great to be able to 
hear more about that relationship and the with the microbiota in our body and our mental health then how does what we eat come into play with this relationship but then all these other factors and I feel like as you mentioned it can be so easy probably to get potentially bogged down with the minutiae and the little details about each of these individual nutrients but essentially and the at the end of the day we eat dietary patterns and we eat whole foods and how do we go about that? How do we bring all this information about how different types of foods and factors in our lifestyle can affect our inflammation, our neurotransmitters, our neurons, our oxidative stress, and so forth, and bring that all together to something that we can apply in our everyday lives? Um, you had mentioned whole foods, vegetables, fruits, whole grains are potentially one way about going about that. And I feel like a well-planned, nutrient-dense plant-based diet, because there can definitely be plant-based diets that are, as you mentioned, more calorically dense or may not have all the nutrients that we need, but potentially a well-planned, nutrient-dense plant-based dietary pattern could potentially fit into addressing some of these concerns. And I was wondering, has there been research in this area in regards to consumption of a plant-based diet with mental health? And if so, or even if not, looking forward to the future, are there concerns that you may have for people following a plant-based diet in terms of their mental health? And are there ways that we can be considering this now on how to prevent those concerns? Well, so as we were sort of mentioning earlier, there hasn't been sort of the breadth and depth of study that I think we would like to see, you know, looking at a, a population of individuals who are consuming a whole food plant-based diet versus people on the standard American diet um, and, you know, various dietary patterns in between and controlling for other confounding variables. So we need to see more of that. There has been some research looking at more plant-based dietary patterns, you know, Seventh-day Adventist uh, groups who tend to consume more um, plant-based foods and, um, and then looking also at studies showing increased intake of fruits and vegetables leads to um, improved mental health or increased intake of fiber or evidence that, you know, individuals who eat more whole grains or nuts or seeds or certain spices um, have been shown to improve mental health. So it's interesting because we've really looked at sort of components of a plant-based diet and show that all these various components seem to positively impact mental health. And then we've also seen other studies showing that um, if individuals eat more uh, fast foods or commercial baked goods um, or saturated fats, all of these components seem to worsen mental health um, or having sort of too high of an intake of omega-6 fatty acids as opposed to the more anti-inflammatory omega-3 fatty acids uh, or consuming too many refined grains. Or there was an interesting study showing that nitrates in, in processed meats seem to increase the risk for mania. So there's sort of all these isolated studies suggesting, oh, we really need to lower these things in our diet. And then these other studies that show we need to increase these components in our diet. Again, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and um, nuts and seeds and, and certain spices. And, and there's particular evidence for certain um, foods, certain antioxidants found in olives and green tea and dark chocolate seem to all have good mental health and anti-inflammatory properties. 
And again, you know, it's, it's got to be careful when you say things like olives, because a lot of olives then are chock full of sodium um, or dark chocolate. If it has, you know, milk fat and sugar and whatever, then you can sort of lose some of those uh, protective properties, but also herbs and spices. It's very interesting how a lot of them have pretty potent anti-inflammatory properties. Turmeric is one that's talked about a lot, especially if you combine it with black pepper to make it more um, bioavailable. And actually that's also been shown to raise BDNF levels. Uh, we also know um, berries and cruciferous vegetables. So things like kale and broccoli and cauliflower and, and cabbage, they've also been shown to have pretty potent anti-inflammatory and mental health promoting properties. Well, you asked also about concerns um, that we may wanna have in regards to protecting our mental health. And, and I like that you use the term well-planned diet because whether that's a plant-based diet or any other sort of dietary pattern, if you're trying to focus on your health, it has to be well-planned to ensure that you're getting nutrition. And that doesn't mean it has to be complicated or you have to you know, buy scales and weigh your food or shop at special stores. It just means that all of our lives are, are often busy and chaotic and it's easy to get into this pattern where you're like, well, I'll just, you know, grab some takeout or I'll just nuke a, a package of oatmeal or whatever it is. And, and then we're not having the, the varied foods that we should be eating to support our mental health. And, and as you mentioned, you can eat a diet that's all plant-based and it can still be remarkably nutrient poor and fiber deficient. And, and the reality is, although we all need to have convenience foods now and again, you know, absolutely. It, it's more about what you do as a pattern than what you do in that one particular moment. And, and it's true that it, it can take a bit more time um, to, to plan it out and make sure that you're having home cooked meals. So, you know, what's, what's in the meal, you know, again, it doesn't have to be every meal, but, um, making sure that you, you're giving thought to what you're eating. And we mentioned that there still can be dietary deficiencies and they can, uh, worsen or, or mimic mental health symptoms. Um, and, Actually, if you're eating a varied whole food plant-based diet, you're actually probably more likely to get the nutrients that you need uh, than somebody eating the standard American diet. But there are some important considerations. So certainly vitamin B12 is a consideration because um, B12 isn't actually found in our food. It's made by microorganisms in the soil but we have to be washing and sanitizing our food very closely. And, you know, therefore we're not consuming B12, but animals consume B12. And that's why animal products tend to have B12 in them. So if you're eating a primarily whole food plant-based diet, then it's important to be making sure that you are getting a regular source of B12, you know, a thousand micrograms once per week, or, you know, a smaller dose, 250 micrograms every day. Um, then, you know, getting your vitamin D level, or excuse me, your vitamin B12 level assessed now and again, but that does segue me into vitamin D, especially because we live in Canada and uh, vitamin D is actually, it's more like a, a pro hormone because our body synthesizes it from exposure to sunlight and, you know, living where we do, it's difficult to get uh, skin exposure to, to the sun adequately throughout the, the colder and darker months. And even in the sunny months, well, you know, for, for skin health, we want to be wearing our sunscreen, but even an SPF of eight blocks vitamin D absorption by 95%. So all that to be said, uh, vitamin D is another important consideration because it can absolutely impact our mental health if our levels are low. 
And, you know, also we talked about making sure you have omega-3 fatty acids in the diet uh, and they can be found in, in plant foods, flax seeds being uh, the highest source of ALA, which is um, the omega-3 fatty acid. That's the precursor to EPA and DHA. Um, although you do have to grind your flax seeds, otherwise, well, they're likely to come out sort of the way they went in. Um, and there is a bit of sort of controversy about the omega-3 fatty acids because um, if you're taking a plant-based source, you're eating it as food, walnuts, uh, chia seeds, flax seeds, you get ALA. And the, the body isn't all that efficient at converting ALA into EPA and DHA, which are the omega-3 fatty acids that we're, we're generally thinking about when we're talking about promoting our health and, and in particular our mental health. And men in particular seem to even be a little bit worse at that conversion to EPA and DHA. So, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about your omega-3 fatty acids, making sure you're taking a, a good source, again, you know, flax seeds or chia seeds, walnuts every day. And if you're specifically trying to target your mental health, although the, the research is mixed, you may want to consider taking an omega-3 fatty acid supplement. People think a lot about fish for omega-3 fatty acids, but the reality is that Fish don't contain omega-3 fatty acids. They eat algae that contains omega-3 fatty acids. So you can sort of skip the middleman and take an algae-based supplement, and then you're getting your omega-3s from the same place that the fish do. Thank you. I feel like that addresses a lot of the concerns that are up there and also shows that there's such a variety of different foods that are available to potentially address some of those concerns or just increasing awareness of things to be conscious of and following this type of dietary pattern. And we're going to step back a little bit. And I was wondering if you could share your own plant-based journey and describe if, and if so, how you incorporate a plant-based values into your own practice. I actually uh, moved towards a plant-based diet when I was younger for, for reasons of compassion and, and uh, the environment. I was about 14 years old when I started adopting a, a plant-based diet, but I didn't really have a lot of knowledge about nutrition and uh, I'm not, I wouldn't say I ate maybe the healthiest plant-based diet back then. Um, and, you know, somewhere towards the end of medical school, it dawned on me that well, we hadn't really learned a lot about nutrition in med school, or at least not nearly as much as I would have expected to. And I kind of felt like that was going to be an important gap because I wanted to be able to comfortably address nutrition with my patients. You know, it seemed like something that was probably going to come up. So I started doing a lot of reading of different, you know, evidence-based journals and, um, you know, different sources looking to understand more about nutrition myself. And then when I went to residency for psychiatry, we got even less training about nutrition mm -hmm. uh, in the five-year residency training. But I actually wasn't surprised or concerned about that because even though I'd done all that reading, I still didn't actually know that nutrition was important for mental health. But then when I got out into practice, I mean, we all learn to sort of address the whole person and um, take a sort of biopsychosocial um, approach to healthcare. But again, you know, there, there really is a lot of pressures when you come out, uh, time pressures. And I started to feel a little bit unhappy with um, the care that I was providing. I felt like I was missing something. You know, again, I'm not anti-medication and I think psychotherapy has a lot of excellent evidence, but I felt like still, you know, if I had an individual who 
uh, was maybe experiencing a lot of anxiety. And they were also staying up all night playing violent video games and eating nothing but, you know, Red Bull and Pop-Tarts and they weren't socializing or getting physical activity. I kind of felt like, you know, we're missing something really important. We don't address lifestyle. And that's when I heard about the fellowship in integrative medicine through the University of Arizona Medical School. And I thought, oh, this is, this is my opportunity. And I, I participated in that fellowship with uh, physicians from all over the world, all different specialties, you know, psychiatry and surgery and obstetrics and family medicine and, you know, everything in between. And we learned a lot uh, about lifestyle in the integrative medicine fellowship, and that included nutrition. And the more we were studying nutrition, the more I looked specifically at how nutrition applies to mental health. And, and I was really surprised and thought, oh my gosh, I've been missing out on all this information that's really important and potentially an important component of uh, care for my patients. And then how I incorporate nutrition into my practice. Well, that really involves meeting people where they're at, right? It really involves looking at the whole person and what is the context in which they're presenting. You know, if you have someone present to you and they are so severely depressed that they're having trouble even just getting out of bed, then I'm not likely to say, and let's overhaul your diet, right? Because we're just, we're just trying to work on getting them healthy enough to get out of bed and, and you know, eat, be, be able to consume adequate calories. So, you know, we're probably not going to focus on diet right away for that individual. But other people might come in and they might be able more to focus on diet. So I try to really meet someone where they're at and always provide education because, you know, I've worked with people for, for a year, every week before, and really in that whole time, they weren't able to make any changes to their diet. But I've provided them with psychoeducation along the way about why nutrition is important to mental health and, and how it's important. And I've had people come for sort of a, a, you know, a maintenance or a checkup one year later and tell me, oh, yeah, now I'm eating, you know, largely whole foods and I'm, you know, eating much more plant based. And I'm saying, oh, wow, you, you never know what seeds you're planting and what's going to uh, blossom for someone later when they're in the right moment to make use of that information. And, and also, I like to focus with people on sort of crowding out the less healthy foods, because I think if you say to someone, all right, that's it, you can never eat cheese again, you know, all they're going to think about is cheese right? and how they want to eat that. So what I really want to focus on with people is saying, well, let's just build in the foods that are going to be supportive of your mental health. And the more they increase the fruits and the vegetables and the whole grains and the legumes, the more it helps to crowd out the less healthy choices. And then the better and better people feel, they're sleeping better, their bowels are better, their exercise is better because their energy is improved. And, and they start to see all the myriad benefits and start to notice what happens when they eat these healthy whole foods versus when they're eating the, the less healthy or unhealthy choices. And that can help propel someone forward, especially you know once they have that information to making healthier and, and healthier choices. Although if I do tell people to limit one thing kind of right off the hop, it would be the sugar sweetened beverages because they're just such a, a source of empty calories that we could be you know instead replacing with nutrient dense whole foods. I really like that and appreciate the concept of crowding out. It. It's more so telling people what they can have as opposed to what they can't have. It's like, try to incorporate this or have you tried that? And that I feel like it 
changes a person's mindset potentially in it being a more positive experience or more positive framework on looking at it, at least in my mind. And I also really appreciate how physicians such as yourself and other healthcare professionals have been taking the initiative to learn more about lifestyle and nutrition and incorporate that into their practice. I think that's fantastic. And I'm also just going to do a shameless plug for dietitians who um, talk about nutrition on a daily basis. And I know it's not always accessible, but they're also a resource that are available to people to talk about the nutritional side of things. And I was wondering, is there anything else that you would like listeners to know or be aware of or be thinking about in regards to this topic of um, plant-based dietary patterns and mental health that we haven't touched on already? Well, I I really appreciate your plug for dietitians because uh, I have worked with several fabulous dietitians. And, you know, again, when you only have such limited time, it can be difficult I mean, we all know that dietary changes can be difficult, right? I know all this information, you know, all this information, and still sometimes it can be hard to to make the choices that we know we should. And so having the support of a dietitian can be so integral for people in being able to make those changes and sustain them and do it in a positive way, you know, where we're not seeing it all as, you know, uh, deprivation, but instead as a way to, to celebrate ourselves and nourish ourselves. And and I think it can be really helpful to to help someone switch their mindset that way. And, you know, if we were looking for sort of take home points, to me, what I think is most important is just having the awareness that nutrition is important for mental health, just knowing that in and of itself, because that can be so liberating for people, no matter what your genetics are, no matter what your past experiences are, or the stressors you're facing in life, you have the opportunity to make choices every day, likely multiple times per day that can influence your health, including mental health. And and so we can all be sort of active partners in our own health and wellness. And the goal isn't perfection, but but every, every choice we make every day is an opportunity to make a healthier choice than the last one. And I think sometimes, you know, we can make an unhealthy choice and then sort of get down on ourselves or, or beat ourselves up for it. And, and the reality is that, you know, that only brings us down and, and makes it likely that we're gonna make more unhealthy choices, right? Whatever happened is just what happened. But the great news is the next choice is also an opportunity to make a healthier choice. And I think that it's important to know that when we focus on one aspect of our lifestyle, it can be sort of like a big ball of yarn and you know, you're pulling on one thread of it, but eventually you, you pull on a couple of those threads and, and they're all connected to each other and they're gonna help you unravel or untangle that ball. Even one, one little lifestyle change. So say that was um, less exposure to screens, right? And especially right before bed, then that can improve your sleep. And when you have better sleep, then you're probably more likely to make better nutritional choices because when we're sleep deprived, that's when we tend to go for those convenience foods and refined carbohydrates. And then if you have better nutrition, you're probably going to have better energy and that's going to help you to exercise more and the better nutrition and the better energy is going to help your gut health and your bowel movements. And also that exercise might give you more access to sunlight and more social connections. All that to say, 
you know, it's really just focusing on one thing is okay. We don't have to say, oh, I'm going to be perfect tomorrow and do all of these things because that actually probably sets us up for failure. So focusing on one thing, but also continuing to make sure that we're taking steps forward. I think that that's really the most important thing. I feel like that's such a comprehensive take-home message. And because, as you mentioned, in our busy world, it can get easy for ourselves and others to feel overwhelmed. And it's difficult to think about doing all these different lifestyle measures at once. Is there one that you would recommend starting with or trying with first, whether that's in relation to nutrition, with a particular focus in relation to plant-based diets and mental health, or another aspect that you feel would be a really good focus to start with? Honestly, the most important factor is the one that an individual feels most ready to make. Because what we know is that success engenders positivity, right? So if you choose a goal that you are most likely to make, then you're going to have the most chance of success, which helps you feel good and more likely to make another positive step. I think what happens sometimes is we, we feel we should do something, you know, that, that should work. And uh, we're taking on, you know, New Year's is a great example of that, right? Now I'm going to eat this way every day and I'm going to go to the gym five days a week and I'm going to, you know, and sometimes we set ourselves up for failure. So I often tell people to set a purposefully imperfect goal. Choose a goal that you think is ridiculously small where you think, well, put, oh, come on, that's just silly. Of course I can eat oh, one carrot this week. Well, great, eat one carrot that this week. That's this week's goal. And then when you've done that, okay, great. What's next week's goal? And we can build on that success, you know, go up and down the stairs for, for one minute. Okay. Well, next week it can be two minutes. We're much more likely to kind of keep the positive momentum if we, if we give ourselves goals that are realistic. And some people are in a different place in their life where they are ready to take on more. And that's, that's wonderful. But I think it's also okay to, to be where you're at and to move forward from there. And, and I do think it's important for people to know that, you know, you don't have to do it alone and well, likely you shouldn't do it alone, whether that's, you know, support of friends or family or whether that's support of uh, a healthcare professional, especially, you know, I always want to make sure that I mention if somebody's acutely unsafe in any way, you know, thoughts of harming themselves or someone else or um, unable to take care of themselves because they're just in an unwell place, then it's important to seek out healthcare immediately, you know, whether that's your family doctor or psychiatrist or the emergency room. But, you know, no matter what it is, when it's our healthcare journey, we probably are going to do best if we have support. So um, making sure that we have that support network in our life, seeking out, there's lots of, um, you know, telephone crisis supports and online supports these days. So making sure that we're not doing it alone. Such a great message of this community and that little by little, we have resources and supports available to us, but it's we have to also be aware of those resources and supports. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to discuss these with us and the Base Canada listeners. It's been such a great talk. And I know I'm gonna go make my perfectly imperfect goal right after this. So thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This episode was hosted by myself, Stephanie Nishi, and Clint Stamatovich is our audio engineer. 
This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guest, Dr. Linda Plowright, for speaking with us and sharing her insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate health professionals and the public on the evidence behind plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website at www.plantbasedcanada.org and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org. Until next time.